Welcome to Backstory, a show that looks at the history behind the headlines. I'm Brian Bellow. And I'm Ed Ayers. If you're new to the podcast, each week, along with our colleagues Nathan Connolly and Joanne Freeman, we explore a different aspect of American history. And just to note, this show was recorded remotely as per the realities of making podcasts during COVID-19. Because of that, the audio quality isn't always the best, but we hope you'll bear with us nevertheless. Okay, now on to the show. 50 years ago, in April 1970, millions of people in the United States took part in a day of activism that quickly spread around the world, or perhaps more appropriately, around the Earth. Earth Day demonstrations began in practically every city and town in the United States this morning, the first massive nationwide protest against the pollution of the environment. The outcry took innumerable forms. Some students went to school wearing gas masks. The automobile was banned in parts of some cities, including New York. Miami planned a dead orange parade. Skywriting planes were ordered out to inscribe the word air over Los Angeles. In Jamestown, New York, the Kiwanis Club... It was amazing. We had aspired to do something that was relatively modest at its beginnings. This is Dennis Hayes. I'm the founder of the Earth Day Network. Dennis was the national organizer of the first Earth Day in 1970. And back then, organizing a big event like this looked a lot different. There was no internet or social media to get the word out. We didn't have the ability to uh, reach out through Facebook and Twitter or even have email or even have computers or even. So Dennis and his team turned to other ways to generate some momentum. We did a lot of what you could call broadcast outreach. We would figure out some way to get a, a news twist, hold a press conference or hold an event. But he says the biggest and riskiest thing they did was shell out about half their money for a full page ad in the New York Times. It's across the top of it, it says April 22nd, Earth Day. And then in bold letters, a disease has infected our country. It has brought smog to Yosemite, dumped garbage in the Hudson, sprayed DDT in our food, and left our cities in decay. Its carrier is man. And then bam, 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 right on through the ad. So this was, this was a pretty anti-establishment, pretty attention-getting thing to say, this, this is not a picnic in the park and a tree planting exercise and just picking up litter, though there's going to be all of those kinds of things as well for the young kids that participate. This is an effort to cause America to change direction. And thankfully, all that work paid off. So by the time that it came out, and it wasn't an event like the Vietnam Moratorium, where you had something in six or eight cities across the country, Earth Day was observed in essentially every city, every town, every village, every crossroads in America. The estimates from the wire services of being in excess of 20 million people would make it probably the largest organized event in, in American history. And why do you think, given the ferment of all the other things, the civil rights struggle and the women's struggle and the war in Vietnam, that people were receptive to this new cause? Why was their bandwidth not so crowded that they couldn't think about something like ecology? One is that this wasn't a new cause. It was a new, if you will, packaging. 
Uh, we'd had the Santa Barbara oil spill the previous year. In cities across the country, there were poor people rising up to try to stop freeways from cutting through inner city neighborhoods, rising concern about lead paint and lead in gasoline, problems with clear cutting, just thing after thing. But air pollution, people in, in Pittsburgh and Gary, Indiana and Los Angeles had air that was a lot like the air in Shenzhen and New Delhi today. So the, the, all of those things were out there. Groups of people cared about each of them. And what changed was that they had not, prior to Earth Day, much thought that they had anything in common with one another. They were the anti-freeway group. They were the pro-birds group. In fact, I, in a memorable interchange with a prominent conservation leader, uh, he asked me, sort of blustery, what the hell does clean air have to do with birds? Uh, and. <laughs> That would have been an absurd question that would elicit a chuckle like years after Earth Day. We we wove all of those separate threads together into this new fabric of modern environmentalism. In the wake of Earth Day success, Dennis's team planned to turn the protest into policy. In the 1970 midterm election, they pushed to elect more environmentally friendly members of Congress. And once again, their work paid off. A few months after Earth Day, Congress passed the Clean Air Act, which was only one of many new laws on the horizon. And the momentum that came out of the election followed by the Clean Air Act just created the context within which, relatively rapidly, we passed the Clean Water Act, um, the Endangered Species Act, the Marine Mammal Protection Act, the Toxic Substances Control Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, and that somewhat anti-environmental president, Richard Nixon, in order to become a player with this new movement that was there, with an executive order set up the EPA, appointed Bill Ruckelshaus to be the head of it, and didn't intervene when Ruckelshaus banned DDT, banned lead paint, and banned lead and gasoline. So it was a remarkable period where the the pro-environment pendulum of American politics was pulled about as far as we could pull it for for about a decade, up through the Jimmy Carter administration. With this remarkable efflorescence of activity and the Nixon administration, the EPA and so forth, and you had the good fortune to be involved in the Carter administration embracing uh, solar energy. To tell me what, what that felt like as you were beginning it, and my understanding is that it, it didn't come to the conclusion that you'd hoped. The Carter administration was a, a time of enormous hopefulness. I was the head of the Federal Solar Energy Research Institute, which is now called the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. And at the time I was there, we were spending more money, employing more PhDs, getting more patents in the renewable energy field than pretty much the rest of the world put together. Carter had a goal of getting 20% of the nation's energy from renewables by the year 2000. And the institute that I headed was charged with coming up with the program to achieve that. And so we enlisted a bunch of university scientists and some other national labs and worked for two years on a detailed plan of how you would accomplish that goal, in part by making America vastly more efficient, so it's 20% of a smaller number, and then meeting that with renewables. So uh, overall, a feeling of enormous hope. But in 1980, with the election of Ronald Reagan, Dennis says that hope came to a screeching halt. On one afternoon, they came to the Solar Energy Research Institute. They fired about one third of my staff 
they laid off 100% of our contractors. And that was more than a thousand people who were working on renewable energy, often at elite universities, a couple of whom went on to win Nobel Prizes later in their careers, terminated me <laughs> and reduced our budget, which then was about a hundred and a little over $130 million, which back then was real money. Th that afternoon for me was was the bleakest day of my life. I mean, that was worse than the death of my parents. Uh, this is when I had to address a whole bunch of people that I had, many of whom I had, had spent real energy persuading to give up tenured professorships and other great jobs to come and join this, this Manhattan Project for a sustainable future. And suddenly they were given two weeks notice and no severance pay. It, it was just brutal. Um, I spent most of the next year of my life uh, writing letters of recommendation for wonderful people whose careers had been shattered. Despite the setbacks, Dennis has continued to advocate for the environment. And this week, he celebrated the 50th anniversary of Earth Day alongside millions around the globe. Because of COVID-19, most of the celebrating was done virtually. But Dennis says that some environmental lessons can be learned from the public's response to our current pandemic. Yeah, there's just no way to solve those things by any one nation if it wanted to act. And maybe we could learn some things from the way that we are addressing some of these human health issues and applying them more broadly to these, in some ways, very much larger environmental threats. I mean, there will be in the long run, unless we get awfully aggressive, awfully fast in ways that seem improbable, the death that will come as a consequence of climate change will make the relative harm being done by COVID-19 seem extremely small by comparison. It's, of course, something that takes place over a longer period of time. But at the fundamental level, I think of global cooperation. Clearly, if we can do it in one field, we should be able to do it in others.